Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two guests today who will be surprised to hear. The political sociologist Paolo Gerbaldo will talk about political developments in Italy, where a party that features descendants of Benito Mussolini looks poised to take some degree of power. And veteran union researcher Chris Boner will describe just how much money organized labor has that it isn't spending. In Italy, The Economist, Ph.D. from MIT, and central banker-turned-Prime Minister Mario Draghi, beloved of centrist politicians and pundits but few others, resigned on July 21st after no-confidence vote in Parliament. There will be elections in September for new Parliament, and a trio of right-wing parties are likely to emerge victors and will form a coalition government. The three are Forza Italia, the vehicle for the clownish but durable businessman Silvio Berlusconi, who will turn 86 in September but still soldiers on, the Lega, led by Matteo Salvini, which has its roots in a separatist formation that wanted to secede from the rest of Italy because they were tired of, as they saw it, subsidizing the poorer South, and Brothers of Italy, Fratelli d'Italia, led by Giorgio Maloney, which takes its name from the opening words of the Italian national anthem and traces its roots back to a neo-fascist party founded by ex-fascists immediately after the end of World War II. It has the distinction of having run two direct descendants of Mussolini for office and having serious ties to the Calabrian Mafia, known as Indrangheta. The pattern is familiar. The political failure of a technocratic center-left regime, combined with the absence of a serious left, giving way to a right populist formation with serious fascist tendencies. To explain all this, we're joined by Paolo Gerbaldo, a political sociologist who teaches at the Scuola Normale in Florence and King's College, London. His book, The Great Recoil, Politics After Populism and Pandemic, was published last August by Verso. Paolo Gerbaldo. Mario Draghi, a classic technocrat, former central banker, revered by the establishment within and outside Italy, resigned about a week ago. Tell us more about him and his government and why he had to resign. Mario Draghi was yet another technocratic government in Italy, the fourth since the 1990s. Italy is one of the very few countries in the world that has ever had technocrats actually in power by leading governments and is a country that had most technocratic governments in in the last 30 years. This technocratic government was quite similar to others, like the one of Ciampi in the early 90s, the one of Dini after the first short Berlusconi government, the one of Monti after the sovereign bond crisis. And the similarity was that it was pursuing pro-market, pro-business policies, perhaps not as austerian as the ones of Monti, for example, that overtly admitted it was suppressing aggregate demand, but still very much oriented towards, in a way, saving capitalism from itself. Many of the policies Draghi pursued were not neutral, nor technical at all. For example, he um, decided not to pursue the introduction of a minimum wage, which Italy doesn't have, though that was a measure that the previous government had promised and uh, Draghi himself seemed committed to, did a fiscal reform, a tax reform, that was very much skewed in favor of rich people, people on high and medium to high incomes, Further, he had an environment minister who was very much the contrary of an environment minister in a sense that he was constantly obstructing green transition policies coming from Brussels because he thought they did were not in the interest of Italian industry and the automotive industry in particular. This guy thought the EU was too extreme. Yes, I mean, he very much represents a current in the Italian establishment politics, which sees uh, the EU as always good, no matter what and that the ultimate goal of what they themselves consider progressive politics, because they they call themselves progressives, as keeping Italy in line with whatever comes from Brussels, not even kind of questioning whether it is good or bad. This is the Italian, what some people describe as institutionalism, right? 
which is actually the counterpart to populism. Institutionalism as a politics whose only content is a defense of, in quotes, the national interest, in quotes, the institutions. But these terms understood in a very narrow and conservative sense as the interest of big industry, as the interest of the state apparatus, a politics that is not very popular uh, in the long term with Italian voters. It's as if we've seen, what, over 30 years now of uh, Maastricht and uh, the Euro discipline. Italy is really still living under those, those constraints, isn't it? Italy is probably the country, I mean, I would say alongside Greece and Spain, that has suffered most from the downsides of European integration. Obviously, there are also some significant advantages there, but it is a country whose economic model was focused on manufacturing, a country that was competing with German industry, a country where state industry played a central role during the so-called economic miracle of the 60s and 70s, to a great extent because of an Italian quirk, the lack of a grand bourgeoisie in Italy capable of establishing large competitive corporations with the state fundamentally basically substituting, making up for this uh, incapacity of the bourgeoisie to be a proper capitalist. Why was the bourgeoisie missing in action? Where, where Did they just never get formed properly? Did they get destroyed by the war? I mean, there was, you know, the old world of Mediobanca and that sort of thing. That really was not uh, sufficient to uh, have a national bourgeois project? Gramsci said that we had too many <laughs> bourgeois and, and not a real bourgeoisie, <laughs> that we always had these uh, 100 cities they were living on the back of the countryside, basically were parasitical and engaging in, in rentier, a rentier economic model, not really be very prone to risk, which is, say, the minimum one would ask from, from a capitalist, say, at least in theory. So is the country also where the kind of joint stock companies uh, were, are underdeveloped, where uh, the medium size of a company is half what it is in uh, Germany and France, where there is all this emphasis on entrepreneurialism, whereas the problem is that there is too much entrepreneurialism. After Greece, interestingly, is a country with most self-employed in Europe. Uh, but that is not an indication of a well-functioning economic system. To the contrary, it's the indication of a very underdeveloped, of a very unsophisticated economic system, right? There's too many entrepreneurs and too few managers, to, to put it in, in a way. So um, like the Mediobanca, the Fiat's uh, were real exceptions and not the rule? Fiat was still a family capitalist firm, right? The Agnelli family. The biggest enterprises tended to be uh, family firms. And state capitalism made up for the structural lack of a developed bourgeoisie. And actually, Draghi was responsible for selling off some of the most prized state-owned enterprises in Italy ones that were often very innovative, that were in very uh, high technology sectors that also had an international presence. So it was one of the drivers of the big wave of privatizations that started basically in the 90s that destroyed the Italian economy fundamentally because it destroyed those big companies that were state-owned or part-state-owned companies that were the skeleton that allowed in way, Italian capitalism uh, to be internationally competitive. I could carry on in this mode for a little while, but maybe we can have a <laughs> return engagement because I'm really very interested in this, this, these things you're talking about. But um, back to uh, the current political crisis. So why did Draghi have to resign? His trajectory was very similar to many other technocratic governments. Yep. So typically, they start on the back of a very strong popular support. Actually, you have a kind of genuine public opinion wave supporting them often on the back of justification that the previous government was inefficient, incompetent. We need to call the kind of the adults to control the situation. At the start, he had kind of 70% and above support. And then progressively, he lost the support. He lost support to a great extent because of the war in Ukraine and its economic effects with very uh, heavy consequences for the cost of living in Italy. But also he lost support because he didn't really achieve much. There is this myth in Italy, the polity of competence uh, that technocratic governments are justified with. Uh, but often, 
precisely because they're technocratic, they cannot make ambitious, bold plans, uh, forward-looking plans. And as it happened with, with Mario Draghi's government, actually, there was very little that ultimately was achieved. Furthermore, he, he never really engaged in what politicians should do, namely communication, namely engaging citizens, namely explaining policies and trying to build consensus. So ultimately, it was the Five Star Movement that decided to make the first move. But in Parliament, as a confidence vote was called, it soon appeared that also other parties on the right uh, wanted to bring him down. What you said about Draghi makes me think that the bourgeoisies of Western Europe and North America just are a spent social force. They seem to have nothing going for them anymore. Yeah, I mean, it's quite curious what Draghi represents in the sense that he represents a lack, a lack of leadership. His biggest sponsors, his biggest fans were these politicians in the Italian center where you almost have more parties and leaders than, than voters. <laughs> There are all these groups that somehow look like Trotskyist sects, hyper-fragmented with very litigious leaders fighting with, with, with one another. And they are fanatic supporters of, of, of Mario Draghi, but to great extent because they are not able to express a leadership and therefore they are looking for a savior like someone like him. Draghi himself was cognizant of the fact that he was not really fit for the role. I mean, even in his last speech, he still called himself a central banker. Um, yes, he said that even they have hearts, though, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, you're almost hard to feel compassion for a central banker, but, you know, you understand that there are kind of larger issues going on there. And part of that also, again, speaks to the structure of the Italian bourgeoisie. The, it's underdeveloped character, which also as leads to its extreme fragmentation. So it's a pity bourgeois country par excellence. And you see that in the representatives of the bourgeoisie that often are not really able to even construct an organization because of how pity they are <laughs> and how personalistic they are, how uh, difficult it is for them to rise above their the tiny small interests that they represent. Enforcing the, the no-confidence vote, these parties on the right um, see an opportunity, right, for themselves to run the show. It's a trio, right, of parties who are um, in the wings? In Italy, you have now, also with the SNAP elections that are now uh, starting, the, the elections are uh, will take place on the 25th of September, you have a tripolar situation emerging. The PD, the Partito Democratico, which is an alliance of former communists and former Christian Democrats, that basically now is very similar to Macron's uh, formation. It has become a centrist party. Actually now is aligned with all these centrist uh, groupings, groupuscules. <laughs> <laughs> the bourgeois Trotskyists. Exactly. And then to the right, you have a very big uh, right flank, which has Forza Italia, right, the party of Berlusconi which whoever has been declining for years now. Is that a party or is that just a personality cult around him? And he's 85. How much of a personality does he have left? It's hard to say because many parties these days just look like, like I think Forza Italia was the perfect model of the business party. It was actually a perfect case of a firm becoming a party, literally with a very firm employees then becoming cadres of the, of the party. But he was quite efficient at, at that, even at achieving some degree of territorial structure. And then the funny thing I, I was tweeting some days ago is that, you know, like I was remembering when a decade or two decades ago, people were so worried about Forza Italia or Berlusconi because this is a dangerous right-wing populist formation. Now, actually, on the right, it is the most moderate one, while to its right, you have two, in any country, that would be called far-right uh, parties. One is Lega of Salvini, originally a regionalist party that was campaigning for secession of the north of Italy from the south. Now it's become a kind of all Italy party. And then further to its right, the biggest party now in Italy with 22% in, in the polls, Giorgia Meloni's Brothers of Italy, which is basically, I mean, a post-fascist uh, formation in the sense that it derives from the lineage of uh, Movimento Sociale, uh, which in turn was the party that was composed of, uh, I mean, former fascists uh, in the very beginning, in, in, in after World War II, nostalgics, uh, and so on and so forth. 
And this is now the largest part in Italy. So the largest part in Italy is we may want to bracket even the post in a sense. It, it's a party that has a connection, a historical connection to fascism. And is that uh, just um, personality connections or um, other politics? I mean, what, what are the politics like of uh, the Brothers of Italy? It's a personality connection because they've run at least two Mussolinis in their list. <laughs> One with a very pompous name of Caio Cesare Mussolini, like the name of Julius Caesar. And this guy is basically grandnephew of Mussolini himself. And then there's another Mussolini grandniece somewhere. And then obviously when questioned about these, they would say, ah, so you walk leftist, uh, you judge people by their surname. <laughs> but actually, <laughs> it's a start. <laughs> but actually the very reason they, they, they're they fielding these candidates is because of their surname. <laughs> no, because they, they have a section of the electorate that basically is harboring strong nostalgia for the time of Mussolini when trains were punctual and all this kind of the, the usual I'm speaking with a political sociologist, Paolo Gerbaudo. What exactly is their nostalgia for? For strong Italy, strong lira, an imperialist Italy, uh, supposed efficiency of the state and the public transports under Mussolini. Almost all of it is obviously a myth. If you think about it, even approached in the right-wing frame, fascism was a disaster for Italy because Italy lost territory. Under fascism, Italy was very diminished after fascism. It has become a kind of quasi-sovereign country. Even if we just approach it in terms of a politics of power, as the right would do, it was an unmitigated disaster. Not to speak of all the massacres, obviously, that fascism did. Not to speak of uh, very bad conditions workers were sub subjected to. But still, this kind of myth of great Italy, powerful Italy, uh, remains there. So those images of uh, the dead body of Mussolini hanging from its ankles from a lamppost, um, that part is forgotten. In Germany, imagine no party would ever dare run a Hitler. It would be unspeakable. There's much less tolerance towards any overt nostalgic politics entering electoral politics. Though we know, obviously, also in Germany, there are far-right groups. In Italy, the process of the purification from fascism after the war was even less complete than denazification policies in, in Germany. Obviously, partisans uh, fought in the north and some uh, prominent figures, fascist figures, were killed. But after that, because of uh, anti-communist uh, geopolitical priorities, basically also the center decided not to go too hard on the fascist as they were afraid, basically, to tip the balance in favor of the left. And there was always a divide. So it was always kind of a part of Italy that anyway never accepted uh, history. The Day of Liberation is still celebrated. is a national holiday, the 25th of April, which is when the partisans and the allies uh, won the war. But then there was this uh, idea, actually supported by the center-left, that somehow the nostalgics had to be given their own day to celebrate the day of remembrance, as it is called. It really actually remembers like the day of remembrance of, of the Jewish Holocaust. It is to remember these uh, killings that happened in eastern, northeastern Italy, committed by partisans from Yugoslavia. But it is a huge case of historical manipulation. It completely forgets the much bigger massacres that fascist Italy committed in Yugoslavia, right? With concentration camps, uh, with uh, support for crash and fascist, uh, with uh, hundreds uh, hundred of thousand people killed. So these three parties, um, is it plausible that they could form a coalition? Of course, it all depends on the election results, but um, is it plausible they could form a coalition? It's called center-right. The right-wing parties, the Berlusconi, the Brothers of Italy, uh, the Lega. Yeah, I'm, I'm saying center-right because that's how they're called by oh, the <laughs> <laughs> I don't yes, see the center I mean, part, but okay. Of course. I mean, of course, they will be in a coalition because they have a very strong sense of solidarity. Actually, despite the fact that why Berlusconi is Forza Italia and Salvini's Lega were in Draghi's government, Meloni's Brothers of Italy, Fratelli d'Italia, cleverly stayed out of uh, the government coalition, basically becoming the only serious opposition to the government. Yet, they manage, being far less moralistic than the left, far more uh, Machiavellian and cynical, they always unite when it comes to elections. 
so that they can win as many seats as, as they wish. So definitely they will go united, but at the same time, there will be a bit of fighting regarding the leadership of the right coalition. Because Meloni, now obviously she has ambition to become the prime minister, but that is not a foregone conclusion, even if the right wins uh, by a considerable margin, because she will need the votes of other right allies that may not be so enthusiastic about doing that. Now, when uh, Draghi resigned, uh, interest rates in Italian government bonds rose some, but now they're back to where they were a week ago. Do the markets, does capital have anything to fear from this right-wing government? Very little, in the sense that, you know, is we know it well from other populist right parties. I mean, we know it from Trump, we know it from Vox uh, or Le Pen. These are figures, these are formations that present themselves as, as radical and fighting against whatever supposed progressive dictatorship. But ultimately, their discourse is very much framed in cultural terms, in, in value terms that really pose no serious problem for capital. The only tiny element of friction was Brothers of Italy criticism of the European Union. Again, the European Union is not criticized for the right reasons. It should be criticized. This is, again, criticized on the basis of discourse of uh, nostalgia, discourse of recuperating uh, power against uh, transnational institutions, uh, because a discourse of identity, ultimately. Like the Brexit discourse. Yes, very, very much, I'd say. They have some tiny differences in terms of their economic agenda because they represent different sections of capital. You know? And as we know, Capital is also internally divided. The interest of Brothers of Italy is more oriented towards the center-south of Italy rather than the the north, which is more controlled by Forza Italia and Lega. It represents more small firms as well as the interest of some kind of part state-owned firms, for example, in in the um, so-called defense sector. Actually, the co-founder of this party, who hails from my own province in Italy, in the north, north of Italy, he was the head of the business organization representing so-called defense companies. So that gives you a sense a bit of a kind of different sections of capital they're representing. And these are sections of capital that tend to be more protectionistic, uh, more against certain, for example, competition policies, right? Or antitrust policies and trade openness policies that, for example, are more in the interest of the center, of the neoliberal center, and also of Lega, whose base is more export-oriented. So one needs to take these uh, kind of differences into account, but really they, they pose no serious threat to capital, and uh, all the more, uh, say, abrasive positions will be easily uh, forgotten once they are in power. The Lega's origins are uh, in uh, northern impatience with uh, subsidizing the South as they perceived it. Is that sentiment gone? How did they manage to become a national party? Gramsci said in the prison notebooks that to understand the party, you need to understand the country. And in and often the history of parties really parallels the evolution of the country. And it's quite interesting how amid the sovereign bond crisis, uh, somehow Lega managed to win over this sense that the country as a whole was being wronged, using immigration basically as a symptom of uh, the country being wronged. And using, you know, as constitutive outside, this term that people use in kind of political psychology, namely, you always need, need an other, them, an outside. While this outside, this them, previously was Southerners, this was shifted further outside to immigrants, to foreigners, to Africans, right? So that's the way they operated. And it was a partly successful operation in the sense that they managed to actually achieve some quite impressive results in the South, but they still continue to be far more skewed territorially uh, to the north of Italy. That's where their heartlands uh, still remain. Who should be afraid of this government? Are the working class, immigrants, or are things going to get worse for both? Obviously, these cultural references to fascism, the fact that there are over fascist militants in the party, the fact that there's always... On the one hand, a public discourse where they deny absolutely that they are fascist. And, and then as soon as you speak with kind of militants inside, you, you get a very different story. That is obviously very concerning because that normalizes uh, real far-right politics in Europe. 
Some people are speaking of urbanization of uh, of Italy. What's the relation with Orban? Are these people sympathetic with him? They are, and also not just in terms of the kind of cultural politics. In terms of ideology, they, they really have this uh, conspiratorial discourse of ethnic substitution. It really goes full on into, into the kind of far-right, uh, global far-right uh, rabbit hole. Ethnic substitution, low fertility rates uh, because of LGBT uh, people, all these idea that there is an international conspiracy waged by, by Soros and God knows who that is basically uh, trying to, to destroy the country. But also, I think they take some inspiration in terms of economic policies, a kind of mercantilist approach, a kind of new protectionist approach to trade and to uh, partly also to industrial policy. Also, in terms of the relationship to labor, because that we know that one of the most infamous laws that Orban made is this slave law, right? That basically, can force workers to accept uh, additional hours. <laughs> Actually, now uh, Brothers of Italy in its program. It had a very scary kind of black mirror-like scenario where young people would be forced by a database, kind of artificial intelligence application, whatever, to accept job offers, right? And otherwise, they would be fined if they did not accept job offers. It clearly represents, uh, blatantly represents the interest of business, of small business, vis-a-vis the interests of workers. I mean, it could not be uh, any more evident. And the xenophobia, I guess that's pretty important too. Yes, the xenophobia is is obviously very important. But what my interpretation of that is often also the xenophobia needs to be read in economic terms rather than in cultural terms. Why is that? Because African workers can be more easily exploited if they are marginalized, if they are deprived of rights, if they are deprived of the necessary papers, which means that they can be kept in the informal economy, which means that they can be more easily exploited because they are afraid to speak out and to organize, which ultimately means that they can be paid less. It really boils down to that. It's not that they don't want Africans in Italy. They want them at a lower price per hour. What is really concerning about them is also, I mean, there's been a number of episodes of politicians of Brothers of Italy that have been under investigation for links to the Ndrangheta Calabrian Mafia, right, with a very prominent representative in the city of Turin in Piedmont in northern Italy that ultimately has now been finally condemned because of links to Ndrangheta. And there's been actually many cases of that. Is the party that had most politicians under investigation in recent years for links to the Ndrangheta mafia, which is now the hegemonic mafia, the kind of global mafia in Italy, right? Uh, is not anymore the Sicilian Cosa Nostra, is not anymore the Camorra from Campania, is actually the Ndrangheta, which is the real kind of entrepreneurial globalized mafia. Of course, we need to be very worried about fascism and about what these people represent and the ideas, the toxic ideas they they represent. But I think it's also important to take into account how this intersects with economic conflicts, how there is an agenda behind that wants to give basically a free pass to the most uh, savage entrepreneurial practices, uh, depriving workers of whatever little right they have left. Finally, is there any life on the left? Uh, another question. Uh, <laughs> so on the left, in Italy, we had a very, very long time uh, of uh, disorganization, of subservience uh, to uh, the Partito Democratico. Much of it has to do with uh, the implosion of the Italian Communist Party. So at the moment, there is a lot of chaos. The Five Star Movement somehow has substituted the role of the left in certain respects, in a paradoxical way, in the sense that sociologically, it is the party of the popular classes, especially in the South, the most voted by unemployed people, the most voted by precarious workers. It has done very little, but it has done something for these constituencies, including a kind of uh, measure uh, against poverty. And then now it is partially forced to move, uh, to, to, to interpret more of a social agenda. And To its left, there are some proper left groups that are considering an alliance with the Five Star Movement, including the former mayor of Naples, uh, Luigi De Magistris, uh, who is trying to form something along the lines of uh, Jean-Luc Mélenchon's uh, France Insoumise and Union Populaire. So it's still very early, but 
perhaps, perhaps we, uh, amid this very dangerous situation, we may also finally see some recomposition of the Italian left. That was Paolo Gerbaudo, a political sociologist who teaches at the Scuola Normale in Florence and King's College, London. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. Some of Us by Stephen Malkmus and the Jicks from 2003. Next, the labor movement's vast unspent hoard. Between 2010 and 2020, the number of union members declined by 3%, and their share of the workforce declined by over a percentage point, but the revenue of unions rose by 29%, and their total assets increased by 76%. How did they accumulate all this cash despite the membership decline? And what are they doing with all the money? To answer that question, here's Chris Boner, author of a new report on the topic that's summarized in an article on the Jacobin website. Boner has been in and around the labor movement, mostly in research and corporate campaign functions, for 25 years. He's worked with, among others, the culinary local of Unite Here in Las Vegas, the Teamsters, and the AFL-CIO. Years ago, when I was a member of the National Writers Union, which was a unit of the UAW, I recall reading a financial report of the parent union, and looking at the balance sheet, and they had like a billion dollars in their strike fund. And I was thinking, what are they doing with that kind of money? Which, of course, they never used it. And it made me mad I was paying dues to them if they already had that billion dollars was just sitting idle. But that turns out, from reading your report, this is no anomaly. Organized laborers' ranks may be dwindling, but they're rolling in money, both in income and, impressively, assets on the balance sheet. Let's go over it a bit. Their income is... Higher than a lot of uh, human rights organizations, environmental organizations. Um, how do they stack up? How much money are they pulling in? It's around eighteen billion in twenty twenty, which up from around fifteen billion in two thousand and ten. Yeah, the revenues have been increasing over the last decade, and as a result, the assets have doubled over the last ten years. Which was something that, honestly, when I started doing this research, I was pretty shocked. The balance sheet is especially impressive. They got more than twice as much cash as they have liabilities. Assets overall, six times the liabilities. I mean, corporate America <laughs> would envy a balance sheet like that. What kind of money do they have? What kind of assets do they have on the balance sheet? It's important to distinguish between the sort of general fund of the union and then their pensions and health and welfare funds. Those are trillions of assets, but I'm not talking about that. Those are usually jointly managed between union and employers. And their hands are really tied in what they can do with that money, right? To an extent, yes. The pension stuff is just under ERISA and they can't use it in a political way. There are a lot of strategies that unions are using to try to direct some of their pension investments in a more productive way rather than shoveling it into private equity. But that's going on as well. But there's room to maneuver there, but it's certainly not the same. The general fund of a union, that's really up to the discretion of the leadership. Yes, it's quite impressive. $14 billion in cash, $15 billion in investments, $5 billion in real estate, and very little debt. There's a lot of room to maneuver from a financial point of view, and it doubled over the last 10 years, and I think it'll double over the next 10 years as well. And this is all happening while membership is declining, which is kind of a bit of a paradox. How do they manage that? Drawing dues from a smaller membership base, but they just, what, they just increase the dues, or how does that work? There's a couple factors. One is that for a lot of unions, the dues are set as a percentage of your paycheck. So, you know, over the last decade, wages have gone up. I mean, not as fast as we all want them to, but let's say the dues are 1% of your paycheck. As wages are going up, the dues are going to continue to go up. There's a kind of 
built-in escalator in dues revenue. So even if you have fewer members, but you're getting more from the members that remain, that's driven some pretty strong revenue growth. The other contributors to like the growing revenues are the investment income off their various investment holdings, their rental income from the vast amount of real estate that they own. Those kind of factors are growing like in the double digits. Just down the road from me, the hotel trades uh, erected this shiny new building at the edge of downtown Brooklyn, participating in the gentrification of that part of town. But also, um, I just was wondering, why is a union playing the role of snazzy real estate developer? And it's just a money-making strategy, right? Unions are trying to keep the assets somewhat liquid. A lot are dedicated to strike funds. But it is a question, why are these assets not being deployed to sort of meet this moment? And I think it's just an innate conservatism. And a lot of unions have been through some tough times, some tough strikes. So there's a sort of built-in, when is the next crisis going to hit? So let's keep our powder dry. But you know, there's a question about a strategic question of like, <laughs> we're in this moment that seems in my 25 years working in unions, I've never seen anything like this, the opportunities. And this is the moment to to invest. And yeah, I mean, you got this moment where young people are eager to form their own unions. You'd think that they could take advantage of the moment uh, with all this, uh, all these resources. I mean, that's the good news, though, is that there are vast assets available. And you see these reform movements going on right now. Like as we speak, the UAW is having their convention for the first time in their history. They're going to have one member, one vote which may surprise some people that a lot of the officers of unions, most unions aren't elected by the direct vote of their membership. They're elected through uh, this delegate process, which really, really favors the incumbents. But you, so you have these changes going on at the UAW, you have new leadership at the Teamsters, and they're coming in with you know very healthy balance sheets and strong financials that it gives more radical reformist movements in the labor movement opportunity to try and experiment and push through this moment that is so pregnant with opportunity. What they've spent on strike uh, benefits out of their strike funds over the last decade or so, one third of 1% of their assets, it's just remarkably small. They have these giant strike funds and don't use them. Yes. I, I was surprised how small it was. And there is a collective action problem here in that each union is like, I got to have my gigantic strike fund when if there was some sort of insurance or some sort of national strike fund, and, and I know a number of people have adv advocated for this, they could loosen up some of the strike fund money to pursue growth objectives. $70 million on an asset base of $29 billion. Really, these strike funds are not being used. Also, what's going on with employment, the staff at unions? I was, again, pretty surprised and found some data from the Census Bureau that showed that over the last 10 years, uh, unions had shed about 23,000 staffers. Compensation's gone up. Management occupations in the labor world, the elected leaders and the top staff, those kind of occupations have grown. So they're kind of getting increasingly top heavy and sort of not investing in the organizers and staff that make the union work and you know, can lead to the kind of organizing growth that has to happen. You cite a book from what, I believe, 1997 that says this is not a new development. This is a story that goes back into the 80s and 90s, right? Yeah, it's, 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 it really is surprising how few studies there are of union finances that come from the left. There are whole shops from anti-union shops that mine this data to, to smear unions. and. That reminds me, um, does somebody like Richard Berman, the Center for Union Facts, use this data? I don't follow Berman as assiduously as I might, but if you were an anti-union propagandist, you have some material to work with here. There's a whole industry of anti-union consultants who not only do the union busting, but mine this data to sort of critique labor in the public sphere and to sort of go after salaries and look at what who they're spending. And some of the some of the studies are actually how much has labor spent on politics? Well, no one on the left's really asking that. Somewhat people on the right are, and it's like $8 billion last 10 years. But there's a kind of reluctance, I think, in the media and some of the academics of follow labor to really engage with the financial data. It does anger the unions when you're asking these type of questions. So there's very few studies, but there was a study uh, that you were referring to, uh, Merrick Masters did in the mid-90s, and he came to the same conclusion uh, that I did, 
there's not necessarily a financial crisis in organized labor. There's a, a moral crisis. There's a crisis for the working class who are not getting the benefit of union representation. But this kind of dynamic has been going on for decades. The key question is, how are they going to break out of this kind of, I call it an unvirtuous economic cycle where you can lose members, but your revenues go up and your assets double every decade. It's not a good cycle. And if we look back in 10 years and we see that labor has doubled their assets and membership is stagnant or declining, I don't know how many more chances labor is going to get to sort of break out of this cycle of decline. Who controls this money? Is it locals, uh, national organizations? It's widely distributed. Probably about a quarter of the assets are with the national headquarters. And then it's distributed through many of the large locals, which rival up the size of other unions, have significant assets. So they're kind of widely dispersed. It's effectively governed by an executive board, and there are processes for how, how the money's spent. But typically, the leaders really control. They control the information. They control the budget. It's really a small number of people making the sort of strategic decisions about what to do with the money. I'm speaking with the veteran labor researcher, Chris Boner. And the reason this data is available is because of some anti-union legislation in the 50s, right? Yeah, it wasn't all anti-union, but it, it actually came after Bobby Kennedy, the darling of many liberals. I encourage people to watch Bobby Kennedy and Jimmy Hoffa square off. But Bobby Kennedy went to sort of make a name for himself by debranding labor as as corrupt. And there were certainly many corrupt problems going on. I think they were over-exaggerated. Uh, but as a result of those hearings, that really was the first debranding of labor as like sort of corrupt and, and doing uh, all sorts of untoward things with the assets. There was the Labor Management Reporting Disclosure Act basically said, all right, you're going to have to start disclosing what you spend spend your money on. And it was also connected to a Workers' Bill of Rights. So, you know, some good reforms that, that like, for example, members should be able to uh, see their contracts. There was an anti-union impulse, but there was a lot of good stuff in there as well. If you're a prospective union member or you're in a union, you should be able to see the finances of your union without question. And these reports that the Department of Labor collects provide it, but they're extremely unuser friendly. I've tried to use them a little bit, uh, and it's not easy. And so I'm grateful for the work that Richard Berman does sometimes. <laughs> yes, 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 exactly. <laughs> um, the primary impulse why the Department of Labor, I mean, has always been is to root out corruption and less the other mandate to educate union members and prospective workers. Is there a strategy behind this accumulation or is it just inertia or you know, some perverse version of the capitalist desire to accumulate? In the report, I connect this to a widely debated paper that came out, I think, in 2013 by Richard Jesselson called uh, Fortress Unionism. And when I first saw the title, I thought, OK, this is a critique of of laborers retreating into the fortress, but it was actually a full-throated endorsement of a certain kind of strategy. And that strategy was don't engage in widespread, large-scale organizing because it's too hard, it's too expensive, and labor law is broken. So retreat to the meta metaphorical fortress, and you can spend some money on very targeted organizing, you can do better politics. You can support some of the alternative labor organizations. But then essentially just wait. Wait until uh, historical conditions are at the right moment, and then you can get come out of the fortress. And I'm not saying that uh, labor leaders read this paper and said, ah, that's, that's our strategy. It, it, it effectively ratified what labor was already doing. And I think that was one of the big critiques of fortress unionism, this is what labor is already doing. They are not doing large-scale organizing. They're waiting for labor law reform. How's that going to happen if they don't get off their asses and spend this money and actually organize? You know, in 2008, labor was wholly behind Barack Obama. I mean, he ple pledged to be be the most, you know, union-friendly president. And, you know, and I was you know, working in Las Vegas at the Culinary Union. And the feeling in labor at that time was like, we're going to get it. We're going to finally fix labor law. And by 2009, the iteration of labor law reform was, was dead, defeated by the filibuster. That experience deflated the sort of movement to push harder, organize quicker, take more risks. And so now we're, we're kind of, it's kind of a deja vu all over again. Same thing, like 
the PRO Act, which is the latest iteration of an effort to reform an incredibly broken labor law regime, is it's it's stalled. It's not going anywhere. I mean, it's I think it's dead. And so the question is, are you going to do the same thing that we did after the defeat of labor law in 2009 and just go back into the fortress, particularly at this moment? There are so many positive things that say, no, now's the time to take risks. And But I think the economic logic really is kind of a deep groove that really reinforces the conservative practices of, of, of labor. Now, it's funny that Yesel's name pops up because I was in, years ago, I was on a uh, email discussion list, the Kabbalist, for elite liberal pundits. I was invited on as a diversity hire, I guess didn't last. It ended up uh, in uh, a lot of bad feelings. But Yeselson's view on labor was very similar to the consensus of the list view of politics in general, that what gains we had were so shaky that trying to push for more would only result in losses. So for example, pushing for single payer, wrong, because we just had to defend um, Obamacare, because that's the best we could do. And they were so intimidated by the right that if you raise your head, the right would just, it's so furious and so powerful, it would chop it off. Gesselson seems very um, emblematic of that whole approach to politics. Look at it, reproductive rights, too. It's all about elite institutions like courts, litigation, lobbying, but never popular mobilization. The intellectual class of the Democratic Party seems to um, think this way about many, many issues, not just labor. Yeah, I mean, I think it is a, a general sort of issue that's playing out in so many different ways between a more left socialist movement and these dying embers of the, well, it's not really dying, but the sort of Clinton uh, approach uh, going back to Bill Clinton is still swaying the people who kind of make these decisions. And I think many, the labor leadership is very heavily embedded in the moderate wing of the Democratic Party. But, you know, there are a lot of voices pushing and a lot of worker movements and reform movements within labor that are trying to change that dynamic. You've had some of the people on your show, like Jane McAlevey, who I think has really articulated a very clear strategy of not practicing that kind of politics, both electoral politics, but also sort of the politics of organizing workers into a force that's going to transform our broken system. You give some ideas what labor could do with this kind of money. What, what could they do? Yeah, I surveyed what are people saying, what could they do, just from a financial point of view. There's all sorts of practical, bureaucratic, administrative obstacles. But, you know, I kind of look at the CIO, which launched the labor organizing in the 30s. John Lewis emptied the mine workers treasury to fund the CIO. It was a gutsy, risky move. And I think we can take a lot of inspiration from that sort of risk taking at, at a key moment of history. And so in this report, go through a variety, speculative kind of financial experiments about how much labor could spend. And it's, you know, with this massive balance sheet that we've talked about, and they could hire 20,000 organizers right now. The sort of independent unions that, that are popping up, like Amazon, they could be funding those independent unions at a far higher rate. One of the things I note in the report is that you know, during the height of the pandemic, the Ford Foundation said, you know what, we have to spend more. We were only spending 5% of our assets. We need to spend 10 to make change in this structural moment. And labor spending about 1.5% on sort of funding outside groups. And they could boost that to 5% and another billion. Uh, we talked about sort of the strike activity, you know, $70 million a year when you have $29 billion in assets, you could sustain 10 times the amount of strike activity sustainably. And then I think there's a like a fourth element. You're going to have to eventually start breaking the law and get engaging in real civil di disobedience activities. And I'm talking about red ed teacher strikes. So those strikes were illegal. There's lots of civil disobedience secondary boycott activities. There's lots of tools available, but the sort of potential liability coming back on labor makes them adverse to engaging in more disruptive activities that could really change the kind of conversation between capital and labor. The money's there to take more risks and to fund organizing and to fund a lot of different experiments. It's a political problem. It's not a financial problem. A lot of labor, people who write about labor within the labor movement are under this impression that 
labor has been going broke and geez, we don't have the money to do it. It's really a political question of organizing that money. I mean, I even saw an article and it's a journalist I, I really like, but sort of saying like unions are broke. The federal government needs to fund labor to do organizing. No, we don't. We don't <laughs> need to do that. Um, I, I think that's bad. Uh, not a really good idea for several reasons. That's why I'm I'm excited that labor's in this strong financial position, and if uh, workers can gain control of their unions and those reform movements can succeed, it's possible to meet this moment. Anyone who's been in labor for two or three decades, we all look at each other like, can you believe this stuff is happening? Starbucks, Amazon, but Biden administration, it's not enough, but it's the most pro-labor administration by far. All the changes at the Labor Relations Board, which deals, enforces labor law, it's the kind of changes that they're pushing through, never seen anything like it. So if it's not now, it's like, when? The leadership will just have to break the habits of several decades. Yes. Yeah. And I do note in the in the report, you know, uh, about the key officers and managers are in the upper 10 percent of the income bracket. So this kind of system and I'm not impugning their integrity. It's more a materialist sort of analysis that why disrupt a system that is pretty much providing some really good jobs for people at the top at the at the labor bureaucracy. And the UAW just increased their salaries, their top leaders today at the convention. So it's not, it's not, uh, apparently it's not getting through everywhere. That was Chris Boner, a longtime union researcher. You can find a summary of his report on union finance on the Jacobin Magazine website and the full report at Radish Research, radish like the vegetable, research.org. I should make it clear that there's no way this could become a better country without a revived labor movement, but they're doing a miserable job of it right now. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. We discussed we discussed Richard Berman, a tireless anti-union propagandist. His son, David Berman, was the troubled genius behind the band Silver Jews. Here's a bit of their 2005 song, Punks in the Beer Light. Till next week, bye. Where's the paper?